still my soul, the Lord is on thy side, with patience bear thy cross of grief or pain. My name is Bill Real. You've likely gotten this audio today because somebody you love or care about is having their faith go through a transition. And these transitions can be tough. They can be painful. They can hurt. They can be uncomfortable and awkward. And what makes them worse is that there are times where we need nothing more in these these experiences than to have somebody we love understand what we're going through. So this audio was likely shared with you by somebody you love and care about who's hoping that by your listening to it, that they might garner understanding and empathy for the process that they're in. Again, my name's Bill Real. I'm a active Latter-day Saint a former bishop in the church, and having gone through this process myself, I've spent the last six or seven years dedicating my life to helping build bridges of understanding between those who hold a more orthodox position in the church and those whose faith is transitioning or changing. And so today I wanted to talk to you about stages of faith I hope and pray you'll take time to listen to this. And I'll try to be as thorough as I can. I also give you my word. Like, I don't want to talk about specific theological or historical issues that your loved one has any conflict over. Rather, I want to talk about the way their brain has changed in how they process information generally and what social scientists and developmental experts say about those changes. Also, while the words faith development is in the title, we will not be talking about faith in the LDS church, but rather the process of human development that we all go through and how that development affects our spiritual intelligence. I want to help you grapple with the changes your loved one is making and why and what is of most help. So with that, Let us jump into what I think is one of the most interesting subjects to to have a conversation around. Social scientists have known for years that the human mind doesn't stop developing when one reaches adulthood. That in spite of the fact that we used to think like there's a children's brain and once you're an adult, that's it. Now you have your adult mind. Instead, we realize now that our brain continues to develop till the day we die. In trying to track and discuss this development, scientists have tried to separate the process into stages. Some in this field have separated it into a handful of stages. 
Some have gone as far as to split the process into over a dozen stages. Many of the experts in this field have related this development to one's own interaction within their faith community. So with the limited time I have today, I've consolidated this process down to the most important aspects pertinent to your understanding of your loved one. To have a conversation about where the most misunderstanding occurs, where the most conflict happens with those that we love around beliefs in our faith community. We know this process has a direction. It moves a certain way. And that one cannot skip these stages as they move through this development. We also know there are stages before and after those that we're talking about today. And I would encourage anybody who's listening to to simply go jump on a search engine on the internet and, and look up cognitive development. Look up stages of faith. Look up faith development. There are experts out there, Kohlberg, Piaget, James Fowler, and many others. I'll also leave resources at the bottom of this episode so that you can find it and do your own research. So let's start with stage one. And I'll be quick. Stage one is, I, I would call it survival. And, and the most important thing to note in stage one, and, and for the most part, this is with folks who are really young. When, when a baby is born and in that human being's first years of life, that, that being has a very ego-centric view. And we're going to keep saying these words with centric tied to them. It's simply the perspective we have and how we see the world. And so somebody who's egocentric is very focused inwardly on, on themselves. And at this stage, the most important things are self-preservation, survival, like me first, very self-centered. Like how am I going to make it through the world today without any concern for how you take care of somebody else? So take a, take a, a one-year-old baby. Does that one-year-old baby make any effort to take care of the needs of anyone outside of themselves? They don't. Their, their main focus is on their own preservation, their own survival, me first, and again, very self-centered. And you likely see people who have not let go of remnants of this. Like, like we see people who at, at every twist and turn seem to have no regard for the group, but instead ensure that their needs are taken care of first. And so on some level, they've not fully developed out of the egocentric stage. And in some ways, none of us do completely. We all have remnants of that stage within us, moments where we go into fight or flight, moments where, like today or in this very moment, I'm simply going to take care of my needs. So we all do it. But some of us are even, to even a stronger extent, have not let go of this egocentric stage. But most of us do. Sometime very early in our life, we move on to this second stage. Oh, no. 
And the second stage we'll call the faithful stage. It's, it's an ethnocentric stage. So we've moved on from being completely concerned about ourselves to the center of our world being to take care of our family or our tribe. This ethnocentric is, is often a stage that has certain characteristics such as dividing the world uh, into dichotomies, having a dichotomy relationship with the world, right? That there are males and there are females. There is us and there is them. There are cat people and there are dog people. This dichotomy relationship, some, some verbiage to this would be like a black and white world. Like we see the world as either black or white. We see this issue as black or white. There are Republicans and there are, and there are, uh, Democrats. And Republicans believe this and Democrats believe that. There's very little room for there to be ambiguity or there to be overlap. And one in this stage will, will almost always think their tribe is the best tribe. So if you're, if you're a Republican in this ethnocentric stage, then Republicans can do no wrong and Democrats can do no right. And if you're in religion and you're a, you're a Muslim, then you're in whatever facet of the Muslim faith you're in, like that tribe is the best tribe. And you will look at other tribes with almost with disdain in in certain ways shapes and forms in this ethnocentric stage you're more likely to take myth literally and and one of the more important things is that you often will look to outer authorities in other words you show allegiance to the chiefs of your tribe to the ancestors from your clan in allegiance to the clan itself one description explained it this way that in an ethnocentric view, we are pulled towards socially expected behavior. Like we want to fit in. Like we're looking for approval. And those are the qualities that we will exhibit. In this stage, emergence of capacity to see and respond to what others want. Self-identity is defined by relationship to the group whose values impart a strong sense of shoulds and oughts. Values that differ from one's own are denigrated or avoided. We conform to the norms of whatever group we want to belong to. We avoid inner and outer conflict, and we think in simple terms and speak in generalities and platitudes. We attend to the social welfare of our group, and an us-versus-them mentality takes place. Feedback is heard as personal disapproval, and we work hard to enforce existing social norms, and we will encourage and conjole others to conform to those norms. Our tribes and the rules in which we have set up require conformity, and there are protocols to get others to follow. Most of us enter this stage in our teens, and this stage can last for our entire lives. What are some of the, the ways in which this stage will look like? Many in this stage know with certainty that their belief system is the right one. John Pauline said, If they have been taught one particular perspective by an influential teacher or mentor, 
They may conclude that their teacher's way is the only way to think or act. They may feel that everybody needs to do things that way. They may even be inclined to punish offenders if they are in a position to do so. And worst of all, they cannot see their own rigidity. They see things in terms of black and white, us against them. They feel right and strong, while other perspectives are wrong and weak. Every spiritual community has members that see things in this way. So this rigid black and white way of thinking influences their entire paradigm, only conforming to the truth they know is acceptable and anything less is unacceptable to one with this trait. For instance, John Pauline continues that in this faithful stage, quote, believers can become very legalistic and judgmental. Their lives can be governed by should or ought or must, and they can be quite frustrated with believers who don't see things quite the way they do. If they don't grow out of their initial inflexibility and simplicity of thought, they can become rigid in their approach to faith, unquote. Rules are seen in this stage as keeping people safe. The commandments of the tribe are to be followed to the letter of the law, and folks in this stage decide what it means to keep commandments, like keeping the Sabbath day holy, or the word of wisdom, or what a full tithing is. Like there's a need to spell out all the rigid lines and what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. It is also important to recognize where this stage locates their authority. At this stage, members of the church are holy ethnocentric. This means their tribe, and if you're Mormon, the LDS church, is the right tribe. And their tribe and its leaders have the truth and all the answers to all the questions. The ultimate source of truth for members in this stage comes from the wisdom of the tribe's leaders and the tribe's tradition. Again, this goes back to the chiefs and the ancestors. Regarding this ethnocentrism, Margaret Placentra Johnson said, quote, In the faithful stage, identity as part of a certain group is more important than the concept of self as an individual. So if someone were to point out an incongruity in religious tenets, rather than calmly consider both sides of an issue, the faithful person would turn away and might even label the person pointing out the incongruity as evil. If a logical discrepancy regarding religion were able to arise for someone at the faithful stage, he or she would not be able to address it because of the difficulty in facing the consequence of an answer that might lead away from the group. Thus, faithful-level people either do not even perceive such discrepancies, or they dismiss them out of hand, for they are not sufficiently individuated to face life without the support of a religious authority and their group, unquote. And regarding this extrinsic locus of authority, regarding this need to look outside oneself for direction on how one is to perform their duty or live their life, Margaret Placentra Johnson says this, quote, The faithful level person is always at risk of descending into chaos without externally imposed rules. Thus, rather than the authority of personal conscience, the faithful person must subject himself to an oracle authority, in most cases provided by his religious institution, taking literal guidance from scripture 
and the literal word of the religious authorities, the faithful level accepts the beliefs put forth by their church in a literal sense. Unquote. Ms. Johnson continues when she says, Faithful level people tend to accept whatever oracle authority tells them, be it their church, the government, the leaders of their particular political party, because they like and need the rules and structure. Because they do not question authority in a critical manner, they can be easily led or misled by their leaders, be they political or spiritual leaders. Security, certainty, rules, immutable answers, and the authority of the leaders of their own group are traits to which people at the faithful level of spiritual development adhere tightly. They are easily threatened by change and by those who do not agree with their beliefs. Unquote. Robert Keeley says it this way when he states that those in the faithful stage, quote, whether they are teens or adults, find their source of authority for their faith is primarily located outside themselves. Some religious leaders who see themselves as having God-given authority over their flock may structure their church in a synthetic conventional mode, depending on their followers to do pretty much what they say, unquote. These folks are seeing so much by way of blessing that they are certain their tribe is right, that it is the right tribe, it is the right one. Eventually, many at this stage have success, and the church is working wonderfully for them. To them, it is given that if others just followed the rules, it would work wonderfully for them too. John Pauline states it this way. He says at this stage, quote, You feel as if you have arrived. There is a strong sense of making a difference in the lives of others. There is a lot of spiritual satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment that, that comes with spiritual success. Like earlier stages, this is a stage where there is a high degree of confidence. You know you are doing good, and you know you are where you are supposed to be. A weakness of this stage is that it is the most resistant stage to mentoring. Faithful stage members who are in leadership positions don't feel a need for They are now experts who mentor others, but have little need to learn from others. They are at the top of the mountain. There are no further stages to climb in their mind. As far as most religious institutions are concerned, people at this stage have reached the top. This was the goal, and now it has been achieved. If the stages of faith ended with stage three, few would be surprised. Unquote. It should also be said that churches function most smoothly at this stage, and hence religious institutions almost always cater to this stage of development. This stage trusts its leaders implicitly, are willing to have unquestioning obedience, and emphasize the value of conforming to the tribe. Regarding where churches are at, John Pauline says, quote, Most religious institutions are stuck at this faithful stage or earlier. One reason is that the majority of all followers in a religious institution are relatively new and just beginning the journey themselves. A second reason is that religious institutions over time focus more and more on preservation of the institution rather than on the glory of God. Institutions crave and document all signs of success, but those successes are often measured in human terms 
more than in God's terms. Religious institutions can come to crave power and wealth as much as any individual, but find it even harder to repent than most individuals do. Unquote. In the next stage, contradictions begin to not only be seen, but also internally dealt with. But at this faithful stage, it is near impossible to recognize the contraries of one's faith. Regarding this seeing through a glass darkly, for example, members at this stage only deal with their religious narrative in literal concrete ways such as this. Quote, the faithful level person has a tendency to hold a literal view of God and of scriptural text. His God is external to him and judges his actions. In general, a faithful person is less self-regulating than those at later stages. So he really needs to follow the church rules to the letter. He cannot imagine how anyone could behave with integrity without the threat of punishment, whether by authorities here on earth or by a judgmental father God. The faithful person is pre-critical in that her faith has never been examined in an open-ended objective manner, perhaps because her preacher has suggested it. The faithful person often holds an ethnocentric worldview where only my church is right, unquote, by Margaret Placentra Johnson. And regarding the lack of awareness of those contraries, Mrs. Johnson continues, she says, quote, In the faithful stage, identity as part of a certain group is more important than the concept of self as an individual. So if someone were to point out an incongruity in religious tenets, rather than calmly consider both sides of an issue, the faithful person would turn away and might even label the person pointing out the incongruity as evil. If a logical discrepancy regarding religion were able to arise for someone at the faithful stage, he or she would not be able to address it because of the difficulty in facing the consequence of an answer that might lead away from the group. From the group. Thus, faithful level people either do not even perceive such discrepancies or they dismiss them out of hand, for they are not sufficiently individuated to face life without the support of a religious authority and their group, unquote. And I know we've read that one already, but it's important to place it back in the context of this section, because one must ask, why is this stage clinging so tightly to conformity and agreement? Miss Johnson says, quote, why do those at the faithful stage Hold on to the forms and rules so tightly? For one thing, they are uncomfortable with ambiguity. It threatens the certainty that they need. Anything that is other threatens the, st the stability of their world. Thus they readily accept proclamations by religious authorities that perspectives differing from their own faith group are wrong, misguided, or evil, unquote. This is a major trait of the next stage, where folks from the next stage, quote, each begin to note discrepancies in the truths of their respective religions while they were still fully engaged in them. If they had not been ready to move to the individualist stage, which is the next stage we'll talk about, they could not have allowed themselves to see the discrepancies. So it should be noted that about 80% of the human population 
gets to this ethnocentric stage and never moves on. And so for 80% of the population to be at this stage, this stage seems like the quote normal unquote stage to be at. Like this is the right stage. This is the place that human beings are at. And so when someone moves out of this stage, the majority of people seeing what they think the normal stage to be in is will look at those who have technically progressed or developed as having actually fallen away when that's not what's happening. The night is dark and I am far from So up until this point, you likely realize like, oh, my loved one and I were in this same space. Like we honor the general authorities of the church. We see them as having the truth, as the ones who are connected to God in a way that we need to lean on them and what they have to say. We realize like the world is black and white. There are rules. There are commandments. They have to be followed. And so your loved one up into this space has been in the same perspective that you have held. But suddenly for them, something happens. Something changes. Something dynamic alters at this point. And many within developmental theory call this the dark night of the soul or hitting the wall. It is the gateway to the next stage. Once you hit this transition, once someone goes through this, their tribe will begin to see them as different, as not fully one of them. They will use, meaning the tribe, will use rhetoric that tells the person that what is going on is a falling away. Think about that. When If, if, if we can show that this really is development, And this really is progress in the way that our brains process information. And it really is a maturing faith. And then think about how any religion handles it when somebody begins to let go of the rigidity of that religion or begins to take their own perspective outside of the approved perspective. It's always seen as falling away. And I hope you can see that it's helpful if we can sometimes just step outside of Mormonism and see this development or see any issue for that matter from another religion's perspective. And and rather than the defensiveness that sometimes shadows our perspective, that obscures in some ways our perspective when we're defensive and trying to, to defend our faith, our religion, our, our our sacred cows. So this isn't true, this idea that it's falling away. Social scientists and those in developmental fields will attest that this is progress. This is a, a maturing faith. This is development. There is something real and tangible going on here. So for the person going through this, you begin to develop a world-centric view at this point, which is very, very different from the previous stage 
where you held an ethnocentric view. You begin to have empathy for the feelings, situations, experiences, pain, and trauma of those outside your tribe. And you begin to see the value and the validity of those and their experiences who are outside your tribe. Another thing that happens is you begin to sense that the world in a real rubber meets the way is not fair. Like before this point, you had thought to yourself, like if I check the boxes, good things will happen to me and I will be blessed. And if, and if I choose bad things, if I choose negative things, if I choose to cheat the world and to be immoral and to violate the commandments of God, then real punishments are on their way. And for the first time, you begin to sense that the world isn't fair. Lots of good things happen to bad people. Lots of really bad things happen to good people. And there really isn't a rhyme or reason, right? Like for the first time, you sense that while God helps the Utah girl find the keys to her Jetta because she prayed to find them, at the very same time, 3,000 kids died of starvation in the world that day. Like you begin to sense the inequality of how the world works. You begin to sense the, the real conundrum of the framework and box that we've decided everything fits in. Like that box, one can't hold it all. And there's also lots of things outside the box that make more sense. And, and so this world-centric view begins to allow you to have a more critical thinking perspective. And you begin to weigh things on their merit from a more reason or rational or logical perspective rather than saying, like, I'm in my tribe. My tribe's the right tribe. And if somebody offers a criticism, like, I'm going to find any way in my mind to deflect that not go there, not have those conversations and distance myself from those people as bad people rather than recognizing like we're all human beings. We're all trying to do the best we can. Some of us make really serious mistakes. Others of us seem to have pretty clean lives, but that that's a product of lots of factors and not just, not just the simple, I do good or I do wrong. Another thing happens at this point that kind of leads into this, this dark night of the soul or hitting the wall. There, there comes a point in your development where like you feel like you've arrived. You feel like you have control of your life and, and there's things you want to accomplish and you're going to will yourself into those. Like, like I can achieve this. I've, I've hit this stage where I'm experiencing real success. I'm no longer like completely trying to conform. Rather, I'm trying to stay out in the lead of the pack. Yeah, I'm still willing to follow the rules, but I'm willing to excel at the rules. I'm going to excel at achievement. And you sense, just as you're about to hit this wall, that you have arrived. You have this sense of accomplishment. And it feels like like you've gotten to this precipice moment of who you are and what you can do and how you're going to do it. And, and that's the prime ground. When you think you've arrived, it's the prime ground for this dark night of the soul or this wall to just show up right in front of you. So to leave this faithful stage, a stage from before, the stage where everything works so good, to leave this faithful, faithful stage where everything fits so well, 
and the church seems to be working so well for someone, something has to happen, a disruption of sorts. For many, they can relate to this disruption being so dramatic and so traumatizing as to see the name Dark Knight of the Soul as a fitting description. John Pauline, and again, he's a Christian pastor. Uh, he describes it this way, and I think it's so beautiful. He says, at the very height of spiritual success, something tends to happen that we least expect, usually between the ages of 30 and 50, when followers, and, and again, he's speaking from a pastor's perspective, when followers are increasing, people are feeling blessed, funds are flowing in to support the ministry, and awards are being given, comes a very unwelcome guest. It is a personal crisis many have called the dark night of the soul. Past certainties suddenly become inadequate. We call into question everything we have ever believed and everything we have ever done. We feel like failures, like we can't do anything right. We are humbled. Our world caves in. Our faith, which sustained us so powerfully up until this point, doesn't seem to work anymore. All of our answers are replaced with questions. God either vanishes from view or breaks out of the comfortable box we held him in. We hit bottom and we reach the end of our rope. We hit the wall and can seem to go no further on the spiritual journey. We have saved others, but ourselves we cannot save. We feel completely alone and abandoned by God. As one person put it, just when I got it all together, I forgot where I put it, unquote. And and I want to state here, so for the Orthodox member who's listening to this episode, like I think sometimes we want to paint those who leave as as having been too lazy or wanting to sin or they didn't read enough or they didn't pray enough. I simply want to say my experience has been, as well as many who speak to this development, that when a dedicated member of a spiritual walk, and for here we'll say Mormonism, when a dedicated member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints goes into a faith crisis or faith transition, it's easy to paint them as less than, but I think we need to take a step back and say, like, did something really painful happen here? And are we really willing to get in the hole with them and to communicate with them, like, what happened? Like, talk to me. No judgment here. I want to hear about your journey and I want to hear about how it fell apart for you and why. Because I think to dismiss people who struggle with their testimony as having just not tried as hard as we do is unfair and it's inaccurate. I think dedicated members of the church were that. They were dedicated. They were going. They were active. They had recommends. And it's easy for us to look at them and go, yeah, I mean, up until that point where they left the church or that point where I knew something was wrong, like you could see them, their activity diminishing. And and so the easy thing to do is to point at that d- diminishing before the traumatic awareness of of the transition they were going through. It's easy to look back at that diminishing and say, look, see, see, little by little, they stopped reading their scriptures. Look at that. They stopped praying. Look at that. They stopped doing this or they they were doing too much of that. And, and we ought to recognize that if we go back in time to when that diminishing started, we would recognize that this whole process had already begun. It's not that that was the cause. 
Rather, that was a symptom of what was going on. And if we stop judging the symptoms and labeling them the causes, then we can begin to see that this is a really complicated process that your loved one is going through. This abrupt disruption makes everything unsettled and it compels one to question everything. To a parent or a church leader or a loved one or to even the person themselves in the dark night, it feels like they have lost their way. It feels as if they have fallen off the path or at least losing their grip on it. But here's what John Pauline says. The dark night of the soul seems like the end of all spiritual hopes and dreams. But it is not. It is actually a summons to deeper intimacy with God. It reveals that all of our successes, all of the good things we have done, were to some degree motivated by ambition and selfishness or by a desire to please others. We discover that our strong sense of purpose in this faithful stage from before was driven by others and or the church as much as by God. We realize that while the God we have known up until this point was real, we needed to rediscover him as if for the first time. And this may seem odd. This may seem like an odd statement because for some who go through this transition, they may let go of God completely. And, and I offer no judgment and I simply want to validate like for them, that's their spiritual path and we ought to honor that. And, and if there's a God and, and I believe there is, and I hope deeply in that, that we ought to respect God's ability to help this individual on their own personal journey. And to, and to recognize that this person came to their position, whatever their position is, whether it's, whether it's a, a non-belief, whether it's just a messy, nuanced perspective in Mormonism, whether it's leaving the church and going to some other faith, like we ought to honor that that person arrived at those beliefs and those decisions honestly through lots of, of frustration and angst and sadness and and hurt feelings like they've worked through so much emotional stuff to get there. Like to honor that as, as a real spiritual process that they've been through. As they work to reconcile this disruptive time in their journeys, they enter a new stage. And this new stage brings all kinds of traits with it. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for So at this point we're heading into what we'll call um, stage three and we're going to call this the individualist stage. So while the while the faithful stage members were content feeling everything fit, loved ones in this individualist stage feel the real need to question, and to deconstruct everything. They are constantly asking challenging questions. While this can indicate a lack of faith in a spiritual person, it is a sign that God is calling them deeper. Individualist stage people like to be alone, yet are eager for mentoring. Some folks you will perceive as being cavalier. They're going to simply enjoy tripping people up with their questions. And it's easy to mistake people in stage four as being that, but in reality, they are genuinely seeking answers. They're genuinely throwing questions against the wall and wanting both, one, others to offer 
reconciliations to that question so that they can put that question back in its proper place or put it in a new proper place. Or at the same time, they're wanting to like explore, like, does anybody have a good answer to that? And if they don't, like, what does that mean? And what are the repercussions for not having a good answer? And where does the logic lead or the reason lead or where does the spiritual walk lead if that answer is no longer held with the certainty I once held it with? The individualist at this stage, this kind of person, they'll use questions to determine who is willing to go deep in relationship. You see, often your loved one is trying to test the ground. They're they're using certain language they're making certain comments, they're sharing certain insights, and they're testing to see, like, are you a safe person to go deeper into this conversation with? And sadly, as we spoke about earlier, 80% of the population gets to that stage two. And unfortunately, very few people, up to maybe 20% of the human population, moves out of that stage into the stage three individualist stage. And someone in stage two will see stage three as a threat. They're going to be defensive. They're going to want to distance themselves from these vulnerable conversations. Because again, it it doesn't conform to the tribe's perspective that the stage two person is trying so hard to conform to and to be successful within. I, I say that not as any kind of derogatory comment, But rather, like, can you open up just a little space in your mind to say, like, this person is really trying to have a real deep relationship with me. And is there any space within me right now to go there and to have that? As you can see, then an unquote, by the way, that's the end of the quote. Before I made the comment, the, the part of determining who is willing to go deep in relationship. But as you can see, the last quote People at this stage, they want real, authentic relationships, and they will guard themselves against those they perceive as unsafe. So the question is, are you going to be a safe person or unsafe person? Are you are you quick to pass judgment on what they're going through as being a negative, or are you willing to grant space that what they're going through is real, they arrived there honestly, and are you going to provide a safe space for them to talk and communicate and share what their journey has been without those judgments. Whereas in the last stage, the ultimate authority for truth was extrinsic or outside of yourself. And it was based in the, the chiefs of your tribe, the religious leaders of your institution and the institutions themselves in this individualist stage the person is beginning to relocate their authority within themselves. Quote, this is a stage that is characterized by what happens when we take control of our faith, when authority for our faith comes to reside within us instead of with someone else. When this real change in authority occurs, these people examine their faith in a way that they really never did before. They take a step back, from the faith that they had accepted when they were younger, and they begin to ask if this faith really works for them. They perhaps engage questions that have been lurking under the surface for a while, but hadn't really allowed themselves to address. This feels very threatening for folks in earlier stages. 
And it also appears to be something other than progressive development to those in earlier stages. But progressive development is exactly what this is. Speaking of this movement, Margaret Placentra Johnson says, quote, To arrive at the individualist stage, a person must have individuated. Her concept of herself as an individual must have become stronger than her identity as part of a certain group. This does not mean she is selfish. However, it does mean if she or if the values or beliefs of her group, her faith community, for example, no longer make sense to her, she has the strength to branch out. Confidence in one's own reasoning power takes precedence over loyalty to and dependence upon one's tribe. The individual's view of the truth becomes more important than membership in the faith group or even the family, unquote. Think about that. This person is no longer going to bend their will to the will of the group. They're no longer going to compromise their morality to the morality of the group. They're no longer going to accept the beliefs of the group over their own gut feelings about what it is they believe and hold to be true. This can be heartbreaking to a loved one in earlier stages when this individual sheds parts and portions of their religious tradition, their religious belief system, and their religious community. Some folks in this stage stay in their religious community while others walk away completely. There are lots of factors that determine how this turns out. And while heartbreaking, there is no magic formula for keeping these folks connected to their church. While no magic formula exists, there are things that those in earlier stages are doing to complicate the matter. One is to articulate doubt as a bad thing. When we articulate doubt as a bad thing, we are closing off safe spaces for our loved ones who are going through this development to have a space to talk and to work these things out. In other words, if an institution labels doubt as bad, and this person is experiencing doubt as a result of their progress and growth, then the institution or the people who are articulating that position are leaving no space for that person to both doubt and to stay as an accepted member of the tribe. Number two, to label those in this stage as off the path or a tear among the wheat or as less faithful in some way. Any time we paint those who have doubts as less than, we are closing off ourselves and our institution to these members. Like if this is progress and if this is growth, then there needs to be a healthy, safe space within the institution to progress and to grow. Number three, we fail to create a safe space for questioning and dissent. In other words, this person is now owning their own authority. It's back inside them. It's what the scriptures have always pointed to, right? Moroni chapter 10, by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. Like we've got to find a way to honor that when someone begins to take back their spiritual authority and place it inside of themselves, that they're doing what the scriptures have encouraged us to grow into all along. So people who go through this development, they're going to question. They're going to dissent. 
And, and the question becomes, is our institution and is our personal faith mature enough to live with that, to, to hold that? People at this stage will doubt. They will question everything. And they will disagree with portions of their faith tradition. If we feel threatened and are defensive to these traits, then we will have little chance to help them reconcile this transition with continued activity in the church. Speaking of how to help, it has been stated, quote, encourage individualist stage people that their questions and doubts are not a scuttling of spiritual, of the spiritual journey, but rather a renewed call from God to a deeper relationship with Him. What individualist stage people need in their mentors above all else is acceptance and affirmation. They tend to be very hard on themselves. Help them know that God is with them in their questions, in their searching, and even in their doubt. Encourage them to let God out of the box that he may have been placed in during earlier stages. Now, I get it. That's threatening, right? If if we allow the the Mormon framework of how, how life works and how it all goes together, if we allow members of Mormonism to not be held to that framework, think about how threatening that is to you. Think about how scary that feels. Think about how worried you are of the slippery slope that goes down. And what I'm saying is that unless you can find space to do that, you're making it harder, not easier, for your loved ones to come back and to find a way to walk their spiritual journey within Mormonism. These folks will feel empowered to go where reason and data takes them. It's been described this way. Margaret Placentra Johnson says, quote, Willingness to apply reason in determining one's beliefs and live with the moral, social, and philosophical consequences is a sign of growth, a mark of individuation, a measure of personal strength and maturity. Reason outweighs comfort and safety. Science is trusted more than tradition or scripture. Truth is valued over conformity. Claiming salvation for or extending worldly privilege to one's own religious group begins to sound selfish and limited, unquote. Again, that's the idea of that world-centric view and recognizing that just because I grew up in a certain faith tradition, I'm going to step outside that faith tradition inside my head for a moment, and I'm going to weigh the merits of my tradition with all the other traditions of the world and to recognize, like, where does reason and rationale take us in in that exercise? As this quote entails, one in the individualist stage has moved from an ethnocentric to a world-centric value system. They no longer will give deference to their tribe. If they see pain caused in the world, and it is their tribe causing the pain, they will in their own way dissent. They no longer see their tribe as God's favorite, and they have the ability to truly empathize with others who are different than their tribe. Think about this. If you're an Orthodox member and you're in an earlier stage, your goal is always to bring people into your tribe. You're always trying to convert. You're always trying to sway somebody into seeing your tribe as more beneficial than theirs. And somebody in this new developmental stage 
will step away from that. They'll recognize there's value in all of these tribes, and there's also unhealthiness in all of these tribes, including our own. And in that perspective taking, they begin to have the ability to have real empathy, which means that they can honor and value and love another's experience and the very core of who that person is, irrespective of whether that person is a member of their tribe or another tribe. It's it's why certain members of the church or certain post-Mormons, people who have left Mormonism, why they're so sensitive to issues like the LGBT issue or feminist issues. While the church holds certain ground on those social issues, these folks have begun to see the validity and the value of these people in their differences, not in spite of them. They also no longer feel imposed to take all the scriptural stories as literal, nor will they maintain belief in a theology that reason is stacked up against. This will have them reevaluating what scripture is, what it means to be a prophet, what it means to receive revelations, to have the Holy Ghost, to keep the commandments, and ultimately, if there is a God, and if he can be defined the way our faith tradition or for that matter, any faith tradition has defined him. They still feel ultimate answers are out there, and they are searching desperately for those answers. The faithful stage entailed everything fitting together perfectly, and the individualist stage has them picking up the pieces when that came crashing down. Some pieces may be kept, and others discarded entirely. When that process is over, and the person has reassembled their paradigm to some degree, they will begin to edge into the fourth stage that we're now Where going to cover. Where can I turn for peace? Where is my solace? When other sources cease to make me Stage four, we call the strategist stage. And at this stage, folks begin to take on a cosmic-centric uh, perspective. And what that means is, in ethnocentricity, you only care about your tribe, conforming to the tribe, the needs of your tribe, and, and completely at times setting your needs aside to make sure the tribe's needs are taken care of. And your tribe is the right tribe, and anybody outside of your tribe, in some way, shape, or form, is not to be trusted, is kind of the enemy, right? Like, look at science. As an as an Orthodox Mormon, how do you look at science? What if science disagrees with something inside your tribe? Do you automatically side with your tribe? Or do you give value to the science and say, like, hey, something might, we might be wrong about something here. And most people in an ethnocentric perspective are going to struggle to give credibility to anything outside their tribe that points to something in their tribe being inaccurate or unhealthy, right? That defensiveness sets in. When someone moves into a world-centric stage, a world-centric perspective, they begin to value everyone for their differences and they begin to like see like other people in their spiritual walks hold to their truth just as sincerely as 
we do as Latter-day Saints. And so someone in a world-centric perspective will sense like there's right and there's wrong and this tribe is hurting that tribe, so we need to stop this tribe. We need to tell this tribe they are wrong. We need to help them see this other tribe, how good they are, and help the somehow this this situation of tension or hurt or marginalizing or violence being done, we have to find some way to stop that. When someone enters the cosmic-centric perspective, it's almost like taking the perspective of God way out somewhere in the universe and looking down upon the earth and just seeing that people are people, that human nature is human nature. And that, yes, we need to do good in the world and we need to help people to be nice. And yes, we need to serve others. But that all of a sudden, what is new is there begins to be this grasp that this is the way humans are going to act. And that, yes, we can help them develop and we can help them edge into seeing the world differently. But that in this very given moment, we can't stop humans from being humans. That we can't just change human nature overnight and you begin to develop a patience with humans and human nature and you begin to develop a patience for and a trust in the process that over time these things will work themselves out but that it's not going to happen overnight and so you you still work for good in the world but you begin to see the usefulness of traditions and tribes and beliefs, regardless of whether they're literal, regardless of whether there's unhealthiness there. And for the first time since that dark night of the soul, you begin to sense that you can now step back into a tribe or a tradition. And even if you adamantly disagree with facets of it, you can still find that tribe or tradition useful. This stage may look similar to the faithful stage from an outsider's perspective because this person is now jumping back into involvement, perhaps, not always, but perhaps with that tradition, but their faith is wholly and completely different. John Pauline says it this way, quote, it is similar to the faithful stage, but the motives are different. The person is peaceful and patient rather than stressed and driven. It is as if they have come out of a deep crisis. They are unafraid of people or whatever situation might come. I think of Daniel. After the lion's den, what king could possibly intimidate him? As mentioned above, people in the strategist stage often change jobs. They change their mission or their location in ways that mystifies others. But they are living God's purpose, not the purpose that others would set before them. This stage four is much more misunderstood than stage two. The ways of human beings and human institutions are not God's ways, unquote. So while they may stay in their faith tradition from earlier stages, their faith will be much different within them. They may return to similar similar language or rhetoric. They may participate in the rituals. But this faith, if spelled out, would be foreign to the Orthodox believer's of that tradition. So obviously here we're talking Mormonism. Likely there's somebody out there, somebody who you, you have in your ward or your stake 
who they participate. They're there. They're engaged in the rituals. They're engaged in the, the vernacular of our tradition. And yet, and you don't even know it, but if you were to sit down with that person and say, like, describe, like, how you put all this together, what is your beliefs and what do they mean? It would be so foreign that outwardly you're like, yeah, he's one of us. And it, it, but if he put that on the table and gave, and gave words to it and articulated it, you would be like, oh my goodness, that guy is not part of this tribe. He believes in a way that nobody here would accept. And, and what I'm saying is that the number of those people, they're growing. Like this, this is a process that's beginning to um, take some hold inside Mormonism. What God is, what perfect, what purpose prophets serve, what authority the church has, what is priesthood, what God thinks of other faiths, and how God is working out his plan have all been reconstructed in ways that would be understood as heretical, if they were articulated with no language boundaries, folks in this stage are aware of this divide and they intentionally use words and descriptions that allow those in earlier stages to maintain their comfort. Think about that for a moment. As we go through this development, some folks get to a place where they will re-engage their tradition. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. Hear me out, please. This is important. I am not saying that the right decision is that someone needs to go back into their faith tradition and find some new way to believe. It's easy if you're in an earlier stage to say, yeah, the, the right thing to do is to be Mormon because again, you're speaking from that ethnocentric view. Instead, what I'm saying is that some people will go back in, some people will move on to something else, and some people may let go of God altogether. And that I honor all three decisions as just as valid as any other. And that what's more important is not what that person does, but rather their own development and the, their own healthiness within their life and their own ability to move further into the depth of this development in these stages. But for those who do go back into Mormonism, they're going to use at times comfortable language and other times they're going to push boundaries a little as they as they work to encourage the group to nudge forward into development. If they sense something is said that's going to deeply hurt another person or another group, they're going to raise their hand in some way or they're going to express some level of like, hey guys, this this isn't working. This isn't the right approach. Here's another idea. But generally speaking, they're going to use language that you sense as being in the tribe and they're doing it intentionally. They will intentionally use words and descriptions that allow those in earlier stages to maintain their comfort. Robert Keeley explains it this way. He says in the strategist stage, the unsettled sense that existed in the individualist stage settles down significantly. People in this stage can own a faith of the community in a way that they couldn't before. There are still questions, but these arise in the context of a solid faith. There is a strong sense, like the, quote, my faith, unquote, that the person developed at a stage earlier has become, quote, our faith, unquote. People in this stage recognize that long-standing expressions of faith have depth and richness to them, and they stand ready to embrace them. 
They may be ready for significant encounters with religious faith traditions outside their own, but unlike an earlier stage in which they desire to try out other ways of faith to see if they fit, this time around, this is a deep commitment to seeing if other traditions might have insights that can enrich the experience. This stage represents a faith that does not place authority in the hands of someone else, but it is also not afraid to recognize the wisdom that others can share with regard to faith. Let me see if I can explain this. That's unquote, by the way. That's Robert Keeley, unquote. The way I would put this maybe in in simpler terms is that someone in this stage no longer sees any one tradition as absolutely true, but at the same time sees value and wisdom in every tradition. So someone in this strategist stage will say like, yeah, Mormonism isn't any more true than Catholicism, isn't any more true than Islam, isn't any more true than the Methodist church down the road, isn't any more true than Buddhism, isn't any more true than Hinduism. But at the same time, find value and insight and wisdom and useful tools and resources in every one of those faith traditions. The the easiest way for me to explain this would be to quote somebody else. There's a there's a, a member of the Islam faith. His name is Riza Aslan. He has several degrees in Christian history, and he is a professor of Christianity. And Riza has written books on the historical Jesus, which is the idea of looking into the history and what do the scriptures, which are also historical documents, as well as other historical documents, as well as understanding the culture of Jesus's day, what do those things tell us about him? And so Riza's very familiar with Christianity and knows it inside and out and would be considered an expert on Christian history. At the same time, he's a member of the Islam faith. Now, I want you to hear what he's saying. I want you to just pause for a moment and just really take in the way in which he frames his faith. He says, my well is Islam, and in particular, the Sufi tradition. Let me be clear. I am Muslim not because I think Islam is truer than other religions. It isn't but because Islam provides me with the language I feel most comfortable with in expressing my faith. It provides me with certain symbols and metaphors for thinking about God that I find useful in making sense of the universe and my place in it. Like, think about that for a moment. Put yourself, pretend for a moment that's a Latter-day Saint perspective and engage for a moment whether you feel comfortable with this. If I were to say, my well is Mormonism, and in particular, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints tradition, let me be clear. I am Mormon, not because I think Mormonism is truer than other religions. It isn't. But because Mormonism provides me with the language I feel most comfortable with in expressing my faith. It provides me with certain symbols and metaphors for thinking about God 
that I find useful in making sense of the universe and my place in it. Now, pretend for a moment I that I just stated that. And pretend I'm standing in the room with you. And pretend you know me. Are you uncomfortable with that? Did that, did you go, yeah, no big deal. Great. Come join with us. Awesome. You are just as much Mormon as I am. And my guess is, depending on what stage you're in, that's going to be very uncomfortable for you if you're in an orthodox stage. And and I simply want you to recognize those feelings because somebody who goes through this development, when they get to the strategist stage, they're simply going to believe in that kind of way. And if we want them, if we want them to stay Mormon, if we want them to be in the church, then we're going to have to find a way to hold that, to hold that perspective and say, it is welcome here it is one of us. And it can't be like, yeah, we want them here, but we're also going to have to like build walls around them. And we can't let them do everything that we do. And they can't hold the callings we hold. And they can't teach. Certainly they can't teach. Because what if they get others to go that direction? Like all of that kind of rhetoric is unhealthy and damaging. What has to happen if you want these people to stay is you're going to have to make space that they can. And please see, too, they're doing their part. Like, they've arrived at this honestly. And this truly is progression and development. So when they come back in, either either metaphorically, because they've always been there, or literally because they've left and now they come back, they are intentionally using language and intentionally describing and living their faith in a way as to work to help make you comfortable. Like they're not trying to dismantle the way you see things. They're, they're being careful about how they do it. The question is, are you going to make room for them? As the quote speaks to folks in this stage, welcome truth from any corner they can find it. Their faith tradition has no monopoly on truth. And these people will envelop truth from outside sources in a way that earlier stages could only give lip service to. While the faithful stage person would say they welcome truth, the strategist stage person is actually actively assimilating truth from any source they can find it, even if that truth runs counter to their faith tradition. Joseph Smith once said that Mormonism is truth. And then he went on to talk about how Mormonism will welcome truth from any corner, any place, inside, outside of the church. And someone in this stage is truly living that. Whereas in earlier stages, yes, you welcome truth, but really only if it meshes with the truth you already have. If it doesn't dismantle or contradict or counter the truths you currently hold. And really only if it comes from the authorities you trust. And if your authorities are saying one thing, and the world is saying something else, like there's no real effort to say like, is there something we're wrong about that the world is right about? And what I'm saying is that in this stage, they're actually living the idea of being a truth seeker. Wherever it is, if there's something Buddhist and it rings true, they welcome it in. If there's something from Islam that counters Mormonism, that contradicts Mormonism, but it rings true, they welcome it in. And we've got to grasp that this is not something less than, rather this is real development. 
understanding the shift from the individualist stage to the strategist stage, it has been said that in the individualist stage, a person discovers the unique purpose God has for their lives. They add to a head of knowledge of God and others a heart knowledge driven more by compassion than the facts. While in the individualist stage, they sought solitude and attention of high-level mentors. In the strategist stage, they go back out into the world doing many of the things they did before, but now with different motives and a different purpose. Their lives are driven by their connection with God more than the consensus of committees or the direction of others. They put into practice what it means to walk with God. That's John Pauline. While mostly, and that's unquote by the way, while mostly speaking to those who find ways to stay connected to their faith tradition of earlier stages, we should also say something about those who have left the church and have moved into the strategist stage while non-believing in Mormonism or whatever their faith tradition is. Margaret Placentra Johnson has stated, non-believers at this stage are not the crazed and immoral atheist that fundamentalists denounce. For the most part, they have instead found a source of moral guidance within their own conscience that allows for more flexibility than the rules of their faith group in determining right from wrong. This is not the moral relativism traditional religionists warn against. Rather, it is a function of the higher authority situated within the individual, the discerning sensibility that acknowledges that in some situations, traditional rules do not apply. Being governed by the authority of his own conscience, the rational level person does not need the rules of the church to control his behavior. Let me say this another way. When you are ethnocentric, you need rules, you need guidelines, you need commandments, and you realize like if those things were not in place, the world would be chaos. When someone enters the world-centric perspective, they sense that the rules don't always work. And they even sense that even within our faith traditions, we have examples of people breaking the rules. For instance, in the Book of Mormon, Nephi cutting off Laban's head, or in other words, committing murder, right? And we have times where Joseph Smith lied, for instance, about the practice of polygamy. And yet we can later on look back and say, like, was he doing that to protect somebody? And is that right or wrong? And again, we realize that it's messy and that the rules are not cut and dry. So we begin to deconstruct everything. We begin to question everything. And when folks get into that next stage, the strategist stage, They've now wrestled with this on a, on a depth and richness that someone in earlier stages cannot even comprehend. And they've come out the other side having a real, true morality that is situated within themselves. Like they sense what is right and what is wrong. And yes, the rules are great for providing a framework. But every instance needs to be measured on its own. And I now have the ability inside myself to to gauge and to judge what is the right thing to do in this situation. Because this situation is a new situation. This situation, in some way, shape, or form, is unlike any situation that's ever happened in my life before. 
So I will judge this situation with the wisdom and experience that my life has given me, but independent as its own experience as well. I I simply want to finish up with one little last point. For those who are going through this process, I want to make you aware that sometime hereafter comes, or maybe even in the midst of this strategist stage, there comes a second dark night of the soul. Folks in this strategist stage who re-engage the, the church, maybe the Mormon church if they're LDS, or whatever other faith tradition they came from, or if they simply re-engage some other tribe or group, you, you need to be cautioned about another disruption that sooner or later will happen. assimilated yourself into Mormonism or some other tribe or tradition, as one in a latter stage, a later stage of faith, you will need to fortify yourself against another paradox that works to help you continue along the developmental journey. John Pauline puts it this way. He says, quote, one would think that the closer you come to God, the more you are in tune with his will and his ways, the more you would be appreciated by others who are also on the spiritual journey. And the more you would be appreciated by religious institutions. Because, right, those institutions are encouraging growth. But the opposite is often the case. The second dark night of the soul is the discovery that the closer you walk with God, the more out of step you seem to be with religious communities and institutions. The less you are understood by others, even though they are on the spiritual path. As the approval of God becomes deeper, the disapproval of others becomes a burden that you have to carry. It has been said of Jesus that he was neither elated by applause nor downcast by censure. But at this strategist stage, as you encounter the second dark night of the soul, the pain of rejection is still felt and often precipitates this second dark night of the soul. The second dark night can arise for other reasons than rejection, but that is a major one. What is its purpose in the plan of God? Another opportunity to heal, another opportunity to grow. Human beings are like onions with layers upon layers of selfishness and ego and hiding from God that need to be peeled away one at a time. In a real sense, the dark night may manifest itself multiple times, as God engages a human heart in a journey that leads ever closer to him. In conclusion, the goal here is not to judge others on whether they are at or to give us a place to boast. Rather, these stages are real. This development is real. And when understood, they can help us bridge gaps and help us and keep us from making the mistake of labeling people in ways that stops the discussion that hurts relationships, and that stagnates real growth. Once we see that our loved ones are climbing rather than falling, we can be more supportive and in the end more helpful. I am hopeful for the day when our faith tradition and other faith traditions in this world can provide a safe space for such development, 
When the safe space exists, people will feel safer moving into and even feel encouraged in developing into later stages of this growth. Engaged in the tradition of earlier stages without feeling pushed out, without feeling shamed or marginalized, and feeling there is a place here for them to help us all on this journey of faith development. My name is Bill Real. Again, I'm grateful for the chance to have spoken to you today. I hope if you want, you're welcome to reach out to me at R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. Realmormon at gmail.com. If you have a loved one who's going through this process and you want more things to read or to learn about or to better understand this process, or if you have any specific questions on Mormonism, I'm happy to engage you. The most important thing is that we provide safe spaces for dialogue and that we honor the places that other people are at. And that includes them honoring you and you honoring them. And in these safe spaces, we all learn and we all grow and we all develop. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you.